Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And I want you to put a ribbon there, an offering envelope, something. We're going to come back. So you'll know when I say 1 Timothy 5 that I'm almost done. So once you have your ribbon there, go to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. How many of you know that we live in strange times? Don't we? We live in strange times. My message today is when reality becomes real. When reality becomes real. At some point, it doesn't matter what you believe reality catches up with you. So I imagined that I looked a certain way. You know, we all have a certain self-image. But I was in college, and I was walking into a mall with my friend Paul Rasmussen. Paul's probably 6'3 or 6'4. And uh, so we're walking into the mall, and on the outside of the mall, it was kind of a reflective glass. And we were walking in, and I could see myself walking next to Paul. And it was a very sobering moment. Because I realized I'm a midget. That was the moment when reality became real. I realized what I looked like to other people when I was with Paul Rasmussen, so I killed him. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that. It, it, it is interesting. All of us have experienced a certain moment when reality becomes real. You know, you get married and you go to the furniture store and you put a bunch of furniture Uh, You get a loan for a furniture. You get a credit card so that you can have a house the way that your parents had it. And all of a sudden, you find out that you can't pay for it. That's when reality becomes real. All of us have experienced these moments where we have an idea, we have a plan. One of my favorite quotes is Mike Tyson. He said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And that is exactly the reality of life, isn't it? We can all have a plan, we have ideas, but reality, you cannot overcome reality. God has given us a sober warning, a sober warning from God. And when God warns us about something, we should really pay attention. Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? We were on our Baptist history tour this past week. We had a fantastic time. But I noticed in the cemetery, at one of our last stops, there was a large monument, and the foundation had collapsed, and the whole stone had fallen over because the ground underneath the foundation wasn't stable. And the Bible makes it very clear, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? One of the things that we have to realize is there are people that are trying to destroy the foundations of Scripture. They're trying to destroy the foundations of the home, the foundations of our nation. How about the way that people are freaking out right now because it's possible that Roe v. Wade will be overturned? There are people, uh, I think it was Ben Shapiro, that said we should all pray that someone in our lives will love us as much as the left loves killing babies. When you destroy the foundation of life, where do you go? When life no longer has value. The Bible says if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? This warning was ignored by academia. And what do I mean by that? In in religious schools, this warning about the foundation 
Understand the foundation for biblical Christianity is the Bible, right? And if the Bible is not true, then Christianity is not true. Academia ignored this. This is from the New Dictionary of Theology. Within the circle of theological liberalism, one must distinguish between liberalism... Now, let me just stop for just a second. I'm going to read a few things here, and I promise you we're going somewhere. All right? So read along with me. Try to keep your mind engaged here for a few minutes, and I think this will be a help for you. Within the circle of theological liberalism, one must distinguish between liberalism of doctrine and liberalism in biblical scholarship. So the liberalism of biblical scholarship is what lays the foundation for liberalism in doctrine because the Bible is our final authority. The former, that is uh, the, the doctrine, the former was an undermining or denial of the traditional doctrines of the Christian faith, while the latter challenged the authenticity, historicity. So historicity has to do with how history is written, the fact of history. So it challenged the authenticity, historicity, and divine inspiration of the Bible. So they started undermining all of those things. The first serious challenge to the authenticity of the New Testament writings was Strauss's, that's David Strauss, Life of Jesus in 1835. With this book, Strauss proclaimed that the supernatural elements of the gospel history were unhistorical myth. And so we still have today people that, that say that the Bible is myth. It's mythology. You'll hear, you'll hear Jordan Peterson say that often. It's the idea that the Bible is myth. In this same year appeared Peter von Bolin's commentary on Genesis and Wilhelm Vodke's, uh, now Andrea could help me with this, Biblician Theology, both of which demonstrated that Strauss's non-supernatural approach, look, could also be applied to the Old Testament. So what they're wanting to do is remove the supernatural elements of the Bible. If you remove the supernatural elements of the Bible, you no longer have a Bible, right? It's not like any other piece of literature. These works evoked a flood of literature dealing with the Bible and its reliability. In the forefront came the Tubingen School, from which a non-supernatural theological and historical perspective examined the history of the early church and determined the dating and authorship of each book according to its own particular tendency. So what is that saying? That by the form of literature, you could determine when it was written and by whom it was written. So they denied... They denied the historical accuracy of the Bible. They no longer believed that it was true. This continues. The Gospels, listen, were all pronounced. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels were all pronounced to be, to be productions of the second century. And apart from Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and Revelation, look, no book was authentic. So your Bible is not real. This is the conclusion that came from these ideas. Does that sound like a foundation being destroyed? That's exactly what they did. In the realm of the Old Testament came the documentary theory in which the Pentateuch was divided up, that's the first five books of the Bible, into at least four different sources or documents, all thought to have originated at different times several centuries after Moses. So what happened was these these scholars who had never been to the Middle East, they had never examined the, the historicity of the scriptures, they came up with theories and ideas based on the literature of the Bible and the, their own ideas that they imposed on the scripture, and they decided the Bible's not true. 
The Bible's not historically accurate. And if the Old Testament is not historically accurate, then the New Testament doctrines must not be accurate or significant. This hypothesis was fully developed by Carl Heinrich Graff, Abraham Kuhnen, and Julius Wellhausen, who brought it to its dominant position at the end of the 19th century. So remember our warning from God. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So today, when you make a statement about biblical Christianity, about biblical manhood or biblical womanhood, or even the value of life, there are people in this culture that will look at you like you are crazy, like you're insane. And this is what happens in the field of theological studies. The adoption of these heretical ideas had devastating consequences. Every major theological seminary and college imbibed this liberalism. So every seminary in the United States became infected with this error. Almost every Christian denomination was infected with this heresy. And this led to the elimination of the need for the gospel of grace. How did that happen? How does it happen that that we no longer need the gospel? Well, these denominations lost their reason to exist. Mainline denominations have seen a 40% decline in the last decade alone. So they ruined, they destroyed their foundation, and they destroyed their reason to exist because there was no longer a need for the gospel. So look at Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27, we're going to read a passage of Scripture. But what happened, I I want to talk just for a second about when the Scripture is undermined, there's no longer a need for the gospel. I want you to think about that, and we're going to come back to that in a second. So look at Deuteronomy 27 and verse 4. Therefore it shall be, when ye be gone over Jordan, so this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel, that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. And there shall and, and there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool unto them. So these are going to be whole stones. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones, and thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. Now really focus here. This is not just trivia. We're going somewhere. And thou, look at verse 7. And thou shalt offer peace offerings and shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So they, they make the altar of these whole stones. They cover it in plaster and they carve into the plaster the commandments of God on this altar. That's what's happening. And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed, and hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God, and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim, to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan. Simeon and Levi, Judah and Issachar, Joseph and Benjamin. So six tribes are going to stand on Mount Gerizim and bless the people. Verse 13. Remember we talk about 13 being the number of rebellion? Look at this. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse 
Reuben, Gad, and Asher, and Zebulon, and Dan, and Naphtali. So, six tribes are going to stand on uh, Mount Gerizim and pronounce the blessings of God. Six tribes are going to stand on Mount Ebal and pronounce the curse of God. So, if you obey the law, you'll be blessed. If you disobey the law, you'll be cursed. That's what's happening. That's the statement. Now, go to Joshua chapter 8 and verse 30. Joshua chapter 8 and verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. All right, so this is where the blessing would take place. The, the blessing takes place on Gerizim. The curse takes place on Ebal. And here... Carved onto these stones, or the plaster on the stones, is are these curses. So Joshua built this altar. You say, Pastor, this is the weirdest Mother's Day sermon I've ever heard. Here's what happened. You had these men who didn't believe in the historical accuracy of the Bible. That they didn't believe that there was anything in the Middle East that could be true based on the history of the Bible because it wasn't history, it was myth. They changed the dates. They said that if there was ever a presence of Israel in Egypt, then it would have been much later and there's not any historical record of it. Of course, I can't go into, the to- into it now, but there have been many discoveries that prove that the, that the Hebrews were in Egypt and in Goshen specifically. But now you had an undermining of the historical accuracy of the Bible which changed the gospel. You see, the need for the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam sinned. As a result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, all of us are now sinners. And so, Jesus Christ had to come and die on the cross to pay for our sins. If that didn't happen. If Adam did never exist, then there's no need for Christ's sacrifice. And so the Bible makes it very clear in Deuteronomy that this was to happen, and then in Joshua that it did happen. And yet this is not considered history. This is myth. This is fable that was written centuries after supposedly it was written. As a matter of fact, up until very recently, they said that Hebrew didn't even exist as a language when, when Moses was in existence. There's no way Moses could have written it because the Hebrew that the Bible is written in didn't even exist at that period of time. But you know there's a moment when reality becomes real. An amazing discovery. Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal. You see that right there? There was a man. His name was... Adam Zertal. Adam Zertal was an agnostic scholar, not a Christian, but he was an archaeologist. And he knew that the Bible said, and the history of the, of Israel was that, that Joshua had built an altar on Mount Ebal. So everyone was looking on the eastern side of Mount Ebal. I believe I have that part right. And because that would have faced, so the, here's the way that they pictured it. Mount Gerizim, they're standing speaking this way. Mount Ebal, they're standing, speaking this way, so that all of them could, could participate at the same time. They couldn't find on Mount Ebal 
any remnants of what was going on. And here's what's amazing. So if you look at Mount Ebal here, it's just a bunch of rocks, a bunch of stones everywhere, and it's desolate. There's, there's no life on Mount Ebal. No one lives there. Mount Gerizim, there's all kinds of life, and there's vineyards and different things that go on there. Mount Ebal has been cursed, and that curse has extended throughout all of these centuries. It's almost like the Bible's true. And so he went to the other side of the mountain in the 1980s and began examining, and he found this structure. As he started digging, what he realized was you have these walls. And then there, were, there was a pit. You can see in one on the right side, you can see the big hole that's there. That's where the animal ashes and bones were, and they were all clean animals. They were all animals as would be sacrificed under Levitical law. And not only that, but the Bible describes this altar that there were not steps, but there was a ramp that would lead up to it. And if you look in, I could zoom in on that. No, I can't on this. But if you zoom in on that in your mind, it's a ramp that goes up to it. They found Joshua's altar. You know what's happening right here? Reality is becoming real. You see, what happened? If we don't praise them, what's going to happen? The rocks are going to cry out. That is what happened. So this Israeli archaeologist, Adam Zertel. So this is from um, another archaeologist that just made another discovery describing Zertel. Zertel was a secularist. He was agnostic, but what he found there convinced him that the Bible was a reliable historical document. I'm glad he caught up. Now look at this. And this was quite a crisis in academia because now Adam, this is Adam Zertel, had gone off the reservation, was talking like these crazy people, these fundamentalists who actually believe the words of the Bible. And here's the problem. Even though he believed that this altar was real. Now, how many of you can see it? That means it's real. They're whole stones. There's plaster on these stones. Just as the Bible said it would be. And yet in academia, we Christians, we, we were really thankful that this was discovered. Those of us who actually believe the words of the Bible, this doesn't affirm our faith, but it certainly confirms it. What we believe has been proven to be true archaeologically, and that happens over and over and over again. And yet, since the 1980s, scholars still say, well, that's just your interpretation of the stones. Look at what happened. Another amazing discovery. At a press conference held at the Lanier Theological Library on Thursday, March 24th, 2022, last month, the Associates for Biblical Research announced the discovery of a formulaic curse recovered on a small folded lead tablet. It's the curse tablet. Do you know where this was discovered? Mount Ebal. It was discovered in the detritus, the, the, all of the dirt that had been removed from the site to uncover the large stones. They began sifting through it, and they found this lead tablet. As they examined this lead tablet, they saw this, the divine name Yahweh for Mount Ebal in proto-alphabetic script. So this is early Hebrew lettering from 1400 B.C., a long time before any of these scholars believed that there was any such thing as Hebrew. Do you know what happened? Reality became real. And here's the amazing thing. So we read what the Bible says in Deuteronomy, what the Bible says in Joshua. These are, these are thousands of years old, these words that we're reading. 
Now, look at what it says on this tablet. Cursed, cursed, cursed. Cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. What did God tell them to do? Pronounce curses on Mount Ebal. And what do they find from the same period dated to 1400 BC? The exact thing that they were supposed to say. And the message came from Yahweh. The Lord God Jehovah. So look at what had happened. The foundation of Old Testament history was destroyed. If the Old Testament is not true, then Adam was not real. If Adam was not real, then sin did not enter into the world through him. If Adam did not fall, then Jesus did not die for our sins as our substitute. And so the social gospel took over. I've talked to you about Walter Rauschenbusch, his book, The Social Crisis, and the theology for the social gospel. And that social gospel is that Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins. He died for the cultural sins. And that what we're supposed to do is serve mankind. And if we serve mankind, that's the gospel. No, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How that he died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and how that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Why did Jesus die? Because I'm a sinner. Because Adam was real. Moses was real. Joshua was real. Mount Ebal is real. The altar there is real. The curse is real. And what happened was we had generations of people who had no gospel because the foundation of the gospel was destroyed. Remember, a sober warning from God. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? See, ideas have consequences. And there's no way that the world could have known, or they should have, but there's no way they could have predicted where we are today. For the first time in history, there are more people in the United States who claim that, that, that they're not a biblical Christian than are biblical Christians. Why? Because the church's foundation was destroyed. Here's another sober warning. How many of you think that this is a pretty good summation of what the Bible says? Don't turn after Satan. Don't follow Satan. Right? Is that what the Bible says? Make, make no place for the devil, Ephesians chapter 4. Don't follow Satan. Well, here's, here's the actual passage. 1 Timothy 5. You ready? You turn your Bibles there. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I heard somebody say yes, because I told you I wanted to get to 1 Timothy 5. We're almost done. That's hilarious. 1 Timothy 5, look at verse 15. For some are already turned aside after Satan. For some are already turned aside after Satan. And so the message of the scriptures is don't do that. Is that fair? Because what's going to happen? You're going to be cursed. You're going to go to hell. Your life is going to be destroyed. Sin, when it's had its way, leads to death. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, and the ends thereof are the, ends are the ways of death. If we do what God says, we're blessed. If we don't do what God says, then, then those curses are built into the universe. There, there are consequences built into the universe. When I, as a man, cease to behave as a man, then I can get diseases. I can get, there, there's trouble that comes into my life. And we have a society that wants to remove the consequences for our sin and, and, and ameliorate the penalties of that sin, but those penalties are still built into the universe. Amen? If I live on Big Macs, I'm going to die. That's not a healthy way to live. 
that, that's built into the universe. I can pray over it, but it's not going to help. Amen? See, reality becomes real. What's the... How did they turn aside after Satan? Some have already done it. For some are already turned aside after Satan. What's the context? Look at verse 14. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Ladies, what does the Bible say is your purpose? You young ladies, what is your purpose? What is your purpose? Well, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to fly fighter jets. I'm going to be an NBA player. I'm going to go swim against men at Penn State. The world has redefined what a woman is. And just reading this verse, if I was on Twitter, I would tweet this out today. How many of you think the responses would be positive? I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Ladies, if you want to be blessed, if you want to have a happy life, you young ladies especially, here should be your goal. Get married, have children, guide the house, live a holy life. If you do that, do you know what will happen? Your children will rise up and call you blessed. You will find a fulfillment in that that you can find nowhere else in the world. Now, if you want to have a career, I don't care. Go have your career. But you will not find in your career the fulfillment that God has promised if you will follow his pattern for your life. Now, here's the thing. The Bible never tells you you have to get married and have children. Amen? I don't have any problem with women in the workforce. I don't have any problem with that at all. But I can promise you this. That's not where you're going to find your fulfillment. Why is Mother's Day such an important thing? Because mothers are so important. I understand these are man-made holidays. But it's interesting. The difference, the difference in Mother's Day and Father's Day is profound. It's profound. Why? Because there's an innate, there's a natural bond between a mother and her children. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. Then look at what it says in verse 7. He's describing how his ministry, what his ministry was. But we were gentle among you, as an, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. You were dear unto us. So what do we have here? A nurse cherisheth her children. So ladies, not birthing people, ladies, mothers, there's a description. There's a description that's easily understood. He loved those people the way a nurse loves her baby, the way a mother loves her baby. There's just something special when you watch these babies and 
and even very tiny babies. Someone else is holding them. Mom walks into the room and says something, and that baby's head comes around. And the baby's handed to mom. And the baby just nuzzles her, the, 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 their, their head into mom's breast. There's something very special about motherhood, isn't there? It's a profound thing. It's an innate thing. It's a God-created, God-designed thing. Killing those children is not from God. It's not natural. It's unnatural. It's evil. What are we doing? We are destroying the very foundations, listen, not of motherhood, but of humanity. It's being destroyed. There was a warning. We're living in a cultural climate that defines womanhood, parental expectations, career paths, vocational training, abortion culture, women in the workforce. And what we've done is we've redefined it. I, can't, I just can't imagine a man that would require his wife to support him. Now, we can get in a situation where we need help. Right? Wife goes to work, helps with the finances. That's understandable. But I can't imagine, the Bible says, if a man provides not for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Men, provide for your families. And I, I'm preaching to the hardest working people in the world right here. Provide for your families. That's your job. That's your job. I wonder, and we're not going to have you say it right here, I think it would be a really good thing for you men to look at your wife and ask her, would you like to stay home? And then figure out what will it take for that to happen. And a hush fell on the congregation. Hey, it's Mother's Day, not working Mother's Day. It's Mother's Day. Now, I have no problem with moms working. Laura worked almost the entire time our children were growing up. But we arranged it in a way that she could be with them and work. Why? Because that's her job. How many of you know this is not a popular message? Right? I'll bet you it's unpopular here in this room. But this is what God's plan is. God's plan is not for the daycare to raise your children. God's plan is for you to raise your children. This is God's plan. And this idea that, that man, i got to make sure I marry a wife that's got a good career so I can go play. Ladies, be honest. How many of you, that's kind of disgusting to you, that thought? It's weak. It's disgusting. It's vulgar. It's gross. It's gross. Because what has happened is we've allowed the culture to, to, to exalt this playboy attitude among the men and this strong woman, Rosie the Riveter, Right? You know, Sydney, where the men are men and so are the women. That, that's not the way that, that, that's not what we ought to be as Christians. How did God create them? Male and female created he them. And what did he call Eve? What did he call his wife? I'll give you the answer in the question. Eve the mother of all living. There's nothing greater, ladies. There's nothing greater for you 
than to have children. And you, along with your husband, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're living in a cultural climate that, that defines womanhood. Sober warning. We must not, not allow a fallen satanic world to define womanhood. We must not allow a psychotic pagan culture to define motherhood. Because you've got to understand, marriage has been attacked. Male and female has been attacked. I guarantee you the next thing is pedophilia. I guarantee you that's the next step. They're going to come after our children. Why? Because we are returning to paganism. If this foundation is destroyed, how will generations to come understand how a woman best fulfills her God-given place in the world? This is my mom. And it's wonderful that when I look at this picture, I'll try to do this without crying, mom's in heaven. When I look at this picture, does she look manly to you? No, no. And when I look at her, I wish you could have known her. She was the sweetest person that you could ever imagine. She was an accomplished lady. She could type over 100 words a minute. She worked, she was secretary for the head of a carrier corporation, and she was a medical secretary, and she worked very hard. My dad, um, he got mentally weak uh, in the latter part of his life, and so mom bought property and had a house brought in, put on the property, and got the financing cared for. Mom did all of that. So when we talk about what a woman is, or that, that pregnant and barefoot and, you know, uneducated and all that, that's a caricature. That's a complete caricature. My mom was a wonderfully strong lady. I was, we were, I was driving her to the store one day when I was in college, and we stopped at a railroad crossing that, where, the, where the tracks were elevated, and a garbage truck, a semi-type truck, large truck, tried to beat the, the train and, and didn't make it. And so the train hit the back of this truck, carried the garbage truck part down the, the tracks, but the, the truck part drove over the car in front of us. And there were people that were just butchered in this car still living. And people were screaming and everything. My mom took control of that situation like this. There was a guy who had been on the back of the truck. He jumped off, and he's screaming, cussing, yelling at everybody. My mom got in his face, this little lady this big. You need to be quiet. There are things to care for here. And she took charge of it just like that. I'd never seen my mom like that. It was amazing. This was a strong woman. But when I see her, I see a meek, precious, soft, loving, encouraging lady. She, she built us up in such an amazing way. And it, it was actually a little overboard. You know, she said one time, when you kids walk in a room, talking about my brothers and sisters and me, you just glow. Well, my face was always a little oily when I was young. I think maybe that's probably what it was. But that was mom. That was mom. I was singing my first solo. I'm in second grade or something, and I was messing up the words. And my brother was teasing me for it. And my mom said, um, it, it's a soloist prerogative to improvise. Do you know what I want our children to have? That when they see a picture of, when they read as a nurse cherisheth her children, I picture mom. Not Bruce. Amen? Not someone else. Not someone that we've hired to care for our children because we want to live a lifestyle that we can't afford while we raise our children. See, we've allowed the world to define what motherhood is. We need to get back to biblical reality. Because when reality becomes real, 
When the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? What are we going to do? What's the next step? After motherhood is destroyed, after manhood is destroyed, what's next? Things that are unimaginable. We need to get back to biblical Christianity, biblical roles of man, woman, husband, wife, obeying children, right government, righteous people, rightly ordered and rightly structured churches based on the theology that we have on the foundation, built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. Where do we have that foundation? In the written word of God. What is the basis for the need of Christ to die on the cross? It is that Adam came into the world and Adam sinned. The law that was given was given exactly as the Bible says it was and history proves it. Archaeology proves it. Now, we didn't need it because we had the Bible. But do you know what has happened? Reality has become real. And all of these scholars who denied the truth of Scripture, they have been proven to be the fools and crazy people, not us. Amen? And any of you ladies who don't believe that the Bible wants you to invest in your family, invest in your children, invest in your home. Look, if you can balance all that, praise God, do it. I've said I'm not against women working. I'm not against that at all. And it doesn't matter what I'm against. I'm not, the, I'm not your pope. Amen? But I can promise you this. You'll be most happy and most fulfilled if you'll fulfill the role that God created you to fulfill. Amen? Let's all stand together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for defining our roles. Thank you for making this all a reality. These are not just ideas and concepts, myths. That you are our creator. And you have defined our roles in the culture. And where the culture endorses those roles, there is blessing. Where the culture defies those roles, there is curse. So, Father, help us to desire to live under your blessing. To go with the flow of your grace, not against the flow of your judgment. Father, help us to be people of the book. Lord, thank you for these ladies. Thank you for these godly moms that are in this room. And Father, for those that you've never blessed with children, Father, help them to find their comfort in you. Father, help them to find their fulfillment in ministering to others. Father, that's all in your hands. But we do know what your Bible says about those of us who you have given the blessing of children. Father, help our young ladies who are not married yet to, in their goal, to make their goals compatible with what you have said for them to do. Father, help us as parents to guide them in that way. In Jesus' name.